Hello and welcome to the Athlete Archives. This is episode five, Jimmy Pearsall. Jimmy Pearsall was a Major League Baseball player with a 17-year career that spanned the years 1950 to 1967. He would gain notoriety for his strange behavior and his eventual mental breakdown. Jimmy got into a fist fight with an opposing player on the field before a game, and then with his own teammate in the clubhouse. He hit a home run and ran the bases backwards. He literally cried, as in actual tears, on the bench when his manager pulled him out of the game. He mocked opposing players, and then he mocked his own teammates on the field. At one point, he sat down in center field behind a flagpole with his back turned to the plate during a game. These are just some of the antics of Jimmy Pearsall during his career. What you'll learn in the next half hour is Jimmy Pearsall is the first player to ever be institutionalized in a mental hospital and make it back to professional ball. After making the big league club with Boston in the spring of 1952, he would play three months before ending up in a mental institution. He would have multiple escapes before undergoing electroshock therapy. Before I get into the details, I want to tell you that I read his autobiography twice and then watched the movie based on his autobiography. The movie is from 1957. It's called Fear Strikes Out. And if you've only seen the movie, you're getting a very incomplete picture. Pearsall himself said he didn't like the movie. And I'll come back to this at the end and highlight a few things that were missing or over-dramatized in the film. Jimmy Pearsall was born November 14, 1929 in Waterbury, Connecticut. If you're into history, you may recognize that this is just a couple of weeks after Black Tuesday and Black Thursday, the beginning of the stock market crash. The New York Stock Exchange would end up losing 89% of its value over the next three years, wiping out most Americans financially and throwing the country into the Great Depression. The Depression definitely had an impact on Jimmy's family. His father was a house painter and work quickly disappeared. Jimmy recounts in his autobiography, crying as a kid from sheer hunger. His family had no hot water in the house when he was young. He didn't have a hot shower until he was in high school when he could shower at school. So times were tough and Jim's dad was equally tough. Jimmy grew up afraid of his father. He said, quote, when he was nice to me, he was as wonderful as any father could be. But when he was angry, he terrified me. I would do anything to avoid his anger. I lived in fear of his wrath. When Jimmy was in second grade, he came home from school one day and his dad had told him that his mom had gone away. Jimmy didn't know where, but his mom, Mary, had gone to Norwich State Hospital, formerly known as the Norwich State Hospital for the Insane. Mary would return home in six months, but she would be in and out of that hospital many times over the next 10 years. His mother suffered from severe depression throughout her life. Jimmy's mom's hospital stay was 
the start of a problem that Pearsall developed where he would obsessively worry over an issue in which he had no control. From his autobiography, quote, the constant apprehension about my mom was only the beginning. I worried about everything. I worried about school and about my playmates liking me and about what we were going to have for dinner and about how my dad would be feeling when I got home. Each June, I worried about getting promoted and each September, I worried about my new teacher. The older I got, the more I worried. I was always worried about not being able to have a baseball game. If the weather was threatening when I got up in the morning, I fretted all through school, worrying about the rain. If a sudden storm came up while we were playing, I huddled in a corner and prayed it would stop. I got to be a long-distance worrier as well as a short-term worrier. I worried as much about what might happen in 10 years as I did about what might happen in two hours. In addition to the constant worrying, Pearsall also had something driving him to constantly be in action. He could not relax. Quote, I couldn't stay still longer than a few minutes at a time. I had to be on the go all the time. It was impossible for me to read a book because that meant being in one place too long. I couldn't sit through a movie. I had to have constant action, and my worst hours came when I had nothing to do. No matter what I did or how exhausted I became doing it, I had to keep going. I might run dry physically, but my nerves kept pushing me to do more. I drew on every ounce of my reserve every day, all of my blood, my guts, my flesh, my physical and mental capacities were poured indiscriminately into everything. I couldn't stop the mad merry-go-round of activity. Worse, I couldn't figure out what it was that kept driving me. Every night I came home hoarse and exhausted. I couldn't even unwind at night. I had to replay every move of every game, whether I had taken part in it or not. I did it over and over. It took hours for me to fall asleep. In addition, Jimmy would develop headaches that he would have every single day from the age of 15. Despite all of this, Jimmy excelled as an athlete. He led his high school basketball team to a Connecticut state title and he scored 29 points in the championship game. After finishing high school, Jimmy had baseball scouts talking to him, and after a tryout in Boston with the Braves, he was offered $20,000 to sign. But at that time, any player who signed for more than $6,000 couldn't play more than one year in the minors. And the way that Jimmy and his dad saw it, it would set him up for failure. The $20,000 offered would mean he'd be sitting on a major league bench uh, after one year because he wouldn't be seasoned enough to be a big league hitter. Within the next week, he also got offers from the Detroit Tigers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the New York Yankees. Then the Red Sox entered the foray and offered three years at $4,000 a year with the expectation that Jimmy would spend a few years in the minor leagues. The clincher ended up being that the Red Sox offered to pay all the expenses for Jimmy's dad to have a thorough medical checkup. His dad had suffered a heart attack when Jimmy was in high school, and they didn't have health insurance. Before Jimmy started in the Red Sox organization, he took a job loading freight cars during the day and playing semi-pro ball at night. He says, quote, I left myself only a few hours a night for sleeping. I'll never know how much actual sleep I got. I spent a lot of time lying down, but I was tense and stiff even then. 
I tried desperately to unwind. My nerves, stretched like fiddle strings, were constantly begging for release. Before heading to Red Sox spring training, his father warned him to slow down. People in Jimmy's life were noticing how incredibly high-strung he was and how he never seemed to be able to relax. People were worried about him. After three weeks in spring training, he was assigned to Class A Scranton, and this is where he would meet his wife, Mary. Mary and Jim would wed on October 22, 1949, and within a few months, Mary would become pregnant with a child that, unfortunately, they would end up losing. At the end of the 1950 season, Jimmy would make his Major League debut, appearing in six games. After the 1950 season, Mary would become pregnant again, and the couple bought a new home, and Jimmy went back to his off-season job. Jimmy now had even more things to occupy his mind and for him to add to his list of worries. At night, he would lie in bed worrying about Mary, worrying about the baby, worrying about the new house and the financial pressure. He would worry about his baseball career, about his mom's mental health, and his dad yelling at her. He was panicking over the pressure, and three days after they moved into their new house, they moved out. Jimmy was in a panic. Mary was unhappy. She started to really worry about her husband's mental state. At the start of the 51 season, Jimmy was at the major league level with the Red Sox, but he was not starting. He asked to be sent down to the minors. He was near tears, sitting in the dugout, not getting to play. So the Red Sox sent him down to Louisville. After hitting 310 in Louisville, he was benched for a few games, and he panicked. He asked again to be demoted so that he could play every day. Jimmy was sent down to AA Birmingham Barons. I just, I laugh because I can't imagine somebody being asked to be demoted. But with Birmingham, he would hit 346 with 15 home runs that season and hit 476 in the Dixie series to finish the year. The offseason heading into 1952 was tough financially for the Pearsalls. The Red Sox bonus money was gone and the mines were slow, which affected the local economy in Scranton. So Jimmy couldn't find a job. Mary was pregnant again, and panic was setting in. It was during this time that Jim read an article in the Sporting News in which Lou Boudreau was quoted about converting Pearsall from an outfielder into a shortstop. His head clearly wasn't in the right place, and instead of seeing it for what it was, that the Red Sox were just trying to find a way to get him into the lineup, he saw it as a conspiracy to sabotage his career. A little bit of paranoia, I think. He was so convinced that he was being set up for failure that he intentionally left his glove at home when he left for spring training. His thinking was that if he showed up to spring training without a glove, he would have to go home and the Red Sox would not be able to embarrass him. 1952 would be the year that Jimmy broke mentally. He started the season at shortstop for the Red Sox and got off to a hot start at the plate. Through the first 10 games of the season, he was hitting an even 400. In May, he would go cold, and he was hitting 250 heading into June. By the end of June, he would be sent down to Birmingham, and a month later, he would be in a mental hospital. In that mental hospital, he would receive electroshock therapy, and he would be medicated with lithium. When he finally realized where he was, he couldn't remember anything from the time he left for spring training six months before. 
So what led to Jimmy breaking, and what exactly happened in 1952? Well, early in the season, the New York Yankees were in town for a series, and during pregame infield practice, Pearsall got into a verbal exchange with Yankees' Billy Martin. After trading some insults, Billy, who, if you know Billy Martin, never backed down from a fight, motioned to the runway leading to the locker rooms and started walking, kind of giving Jimmy a head nod. Pearsall followed, and once in the tunnel, they started throwing fists. They, they started brawling. The fight was broken up, and Pearsall was sent to the locker room by Boudreaux. Once inside the locker room, Pearsall picked a fight with his own teammate, Maurice McDermott. Boudreaux pulled Pearsall from the game, but he made a spectacle of himself in the dugout that day. He was just in another place, mentally. The whole game, he was acting like a clown in the dugout, swinging from the dugout roof like a monkey, shouting insults at Billy Martin. His teammates, they'd had enough. They told him to sit down and shut up, but he wouldn't listen. He was losing the support of his teammates, and he just did not seem to care. He started following Dom DiMaggio, one of the nicest guys in the game. Uh, he would start following Dom DiMaggio into the dugout after an inning and make fun of the way that DiMaggio ran. He started playing to the crowd when he ran out to right field to start an inning. He'd wave his cap around. He'd take some bows, do mock calisthenics. And if he made a play in right field, he'd play it up and you know bow to the fans. And he was just, he was making the game about him. In early June, uh, Boudreaux sat Jimmy out for a game, and he lost it. He started crying, and it was reported that for 10 to 15 minutes, he just sat there in the dugout crying like a five-year-old. A short time later in a game against the St. Louis Browns, Jimmy made a complete ass of himself by making fun of and taunting the legendary Satchel Paige. Jimmy became a pariah among his own teammates. At one point, teammate Vern Stevens' four-year-old son came into the clubhouse looking for his dad, and Jimmy spanked him. What exactly happened isn't clear. Jimmy says that he, quote, patted him, but clearly he was out of control. The Red Sox had had enough, and they sent Pearsall down to Birmingham. General Manager Joe Cronin said that, quote, his attitude and behavior were detrimental to the team. Not something you want to hear from your general manager. Jimmy would play 18 games for the Barons, and he would get ejected six times in those 18 games. His on-field antics were just, they were, he, he was just, he was out of control. In one game, his manager went out to argue a call, and Pearsall followed behind him. He mocked every move his manager made as he argued with the umpire. Then when the Barons took the field, Pearsall picked up the ball from the mound. When the pitcher asked for the ball, he chucked it at him. Full effort, full speed. The pitcher fired it right back, and Pearsall ducked, and the ball sailed into center field. The umpire came over and told Pearsall to go get the ball. He threw his glove down and kicked it, and slowly walked over to the glove, kicked it a few more feet, walked a few more feet, kicked it again. When he finally got out to where the ball was, he picked up the ball, and he threw it into the stands at the scoreboard operator. 
Then at some point, he just walked into the locker room, changed into his clothes, and came out and sat in the stands and started yelling at the home plate umpire. He was suspended by the league for that. Shortly after that, Pearsall was on an airplane and he bumped into Boston Herald sports writer Bill Cunningham. Whatever conversation happened on that plane, Cunningham wrote a prescient article that stated, quote, It's my considered opinion that the less written now, the better. And if anybody's really interested in helping the young man, a complete press blackout until he can get his bearings would be the best medicine that could possibly be prescribed. My guess is he's heading straight for a nervous breakdown. Within two days, with the urging of his wife and Joe Cronin, Pearsall would leave for the sanitarium. The next day, Jim escaped. Well, escape is, I use that word loosely, because he just walked out. Eventually he came back, but then the next day he walked out again. When he returned, he became violent uh, when they tried to give him a shot, and that's when police got involved, and he was involuntarily submitted to the state mental institution in Danvers, and then later transferred to Westboro. Jimmy would end up receiving electroshock therapy and was diagnosed with manic depression, or what we call bipolar disorder today. He would be treated with lithium, which 70 years later, this is still how bipolar disorder is treated. It would be six weeks before Jimmy broke from his psychosis. When he stabilized, he had no idea where he was. It was now August, and the last thing he could remember was just before spring training in January. His wife and doctor carefully helped him understand what had happened. They told him stories, and they showed him newspapers, and he slowly started to piece together what he missed. Jimmy wanted to get back to the Red Sox and play immediately, but the Red Sox... They handled it well, and they convinced him to take his family to Florida for the winter, paid for by the team, and enjoyed the sunshine and the warm weather. An interesting side note, we now know much more about the health benefits of the sun. There's even a diagnosis called seasonal affective disorder, a clinical depression that many people feel when winter comes and they don't see the sun. I grew up in southeast Michigan, so I, I know this feeling pretty well. And uh, seasonal affective disorder is treated with a light box, which I read on the National Institutes of Mental Health website, is also a treatment for bipolar disorder. So kudos to the Red Sox. They really went above and beyond in helping Pearsall. And I'm not sure every organization would do what they did. But heading into the 1953 season spring training, Jimmy had put on a healthy 20 pounds, and felt like he was in the best shape of his life. The headaches were gone, and his family life was great. Thankfully, and maybe surprisingly, the sports writers and the fans were supportive of Jimmy. He would have a solid year at the plate, uh, but he really excelled defensively. Over the next few seasons, Jim would go on to be a solid outfielder, two-time All-Star in 1954 and 1956, uh, but he was known primarily for his defense. He would still have somewhat of a showman in him, but he con continued to be treated for bipolar disorder. In 1959, he would be traded to Cleveland for Gary Geiger and Vic Wirtz. And at the end of 1961, Cleveland traded him to the Senators. 
In May of 63, the Senator sent him to the Mets for Gil Hodges, and it was with the Mets where Jimmy hit his 100th home run and famously ran the bases backwards. As you can imagine, that was not received well by anyone. Two months later, he'd be released and immediately signed by the Angels, where he would finish his career. After his playing career was over, he got into broadcasting. He called games for the A's, the Rangers, and then the White Sox in Chicago alongside Harry Carey from 1977 to 1981. He would eventually be fired for comments made on the air, uh, but he was famous. And he started in a lot of commercials and guest appearances on TV shows. Uh, he spent 14 years as an outfield coach for the Cubs from 1985 to 1999. And Jimmy would eventually have nine kids with his wife, Mary, but then they, they divorced and he would remarry two more times before he passed away in 2017 at the age of 87. I could not find what he died from, even his official obituary doesn't give a reason. But he did have heart surgery in 1976, so... It's possible it was cardiac-related. And in 2020, he would be posthumously inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. So let me touch on the movie Fear Strikes Out. As I said at the beginning, Pearsall didn't like this movie. Uh, it was made in 1957, shortly after his autobiography came out. Uh, but Pearsall had two major objections. One, he felt that the movie overplayed his father's heavy hand in his baseball career, and two, he felt that Anthony Perkins was a terrible baseball player. So I read his autobiography twice, as I usually do for these episodes. First, I read the whole thing to kind of get a sense of the story, and then I go back and I slowly read it again and highlight things that I think are important or things that I want to talk about. And the biggest mistake I think the movie makes is that it never even mentions Jim's mother being in and out of mental hospitals from the time he was a child. I mean, this had a huge impact on him. Not only uh, his, I think maybe the impetus for some of his constant worrying, but it helps us also understand his own mental illness. Um, it's possible that it's genetic. The movie also never even hints at his daily headaches or, or the worrying. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where he takes aspirin after a game, but that's the only hint that we get that he has any sort of a headache. The nonstop worrying, the insomnia, the constant activity, even maybe some of the paranoia, the fact that his mother clearly suffered from mental illness, all of these things are important, and none of them were in the movie. So... I don't, I don't know. I kind of get the sense that the producers honed in on the idea of a domineering father, uh, kind of like a great Santini type, if you've seen that movie. And that's what they based the movie around. The most dramatic scene in the movie is when Pearsall finally cracks. He hits a home run and then he snaps. He loses it, starts climbing the netting behind home plate. And then he goes into a tirade in the dugout, swinging the bat, uh, and has to be restrained by police. Well, none of that happened. I mean, that, that whole scene is, is total fabrication. I don't know, you know, maybe they felt that it added some drama to the movie, I guess. 
but Pearsall's second objection to the movie was about Anthony Perkins being a bad baseball player. That's pretty clear if you watch the movie. He throws a little funny, and uh, there's a scene of him hitting in the batting cage. And yeah, he's clearly not a baseball player, but that's kind of what you expect. Um, that's the story of Jimmy Pearsall. I hope you found it interesting. This concludes season one for me. I have already started on season two. I hope that you consider subscribing to the channel so you don't miss out on future episodes. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Take care.